Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is an ABC podcast. Well, it's a chilly grey morning here at the ABC studios. Lucy Race, the perpetual early bird of the sanctum, is already set up at the ABC cafe, where she's racking up the loyalty card points with her trademark skinny flat whites. Gee, she's been impressive this season. A real stalwart of the pod, although she did miss a few weeks there with a European vacation. She really throws a very young vibe in her jeans and boots with matching coat and umbrella. You just get the feeling this very well put together woman is not just the elder among the race sisters, but also a strong, dependent, constant, the whole team can rely on. And here comes Nicole Hayes, a sunny ball of energy as she enters the cafe, shaking the drizzle from her camel-coloured coat. She greets Lucy with a smile and cheek kiss. Nicole is a powerful voice on the sanctum. She packs a punch for such a diminutive stature. She's an in-and-under performer like so many small but powerful rovers we have enjoyed in footy over the years. She pulls a laptop from her bag and sets up what is clearly a lot of preparation. And this is what we have come to expect throughout the Home and Away series. Emma Race is hot on Nicole's heels, looking desperate for coffee. She is the spiritual leader of the group. You can see her warmly embrace her team as she struggles to remember Nicole's coffee order before approaching the barista. If I'm not mistaken, it appears she is dressed almost identically to her older sister. Pundits have noticed this uncanny mirroring from the sisters before. A self-confessed hot mess Emma plays to type as she digs around inside her bag looking for her wallet while chatting and joking to ABC staff in the coffee queue. The team is almost set as Tess Armstrong enters the cafe. Her booming voice heralds her arrival. She has the sprite of a Christmas elf with a jaunty step and her adorable coloured beanie adorning her head. The team's love for Tess is undeniable as their eyes light up on her approach. In a flurry of coffee cups, papers and laptops, the team all get around Tess for final messages before they run through the security doors into the studio for the final pod of the home and away season. of the AFL. Ten from the side, Houghton. She was surrounded by blue jumpers. Welcome to the Outer Sanctum for another week. I am so pleased to be in the studio with my football-loving Sanctum sisters. I am Emma Race and you are... Lucy Race, nice to meet you. <laughs> Dressed identically. <laughs> yeah, they again. are. Listeners, they are, I can testify. Oh, it's Nicole Hayes here. Hello, Still. Nicole Hayes. Hi. And a huge shout out to the gorgeous Kelly Underwood for that Hello. amazing commentary. <laughs> it was fun and joyous and all accurate, but um, there is a deeper reason why we did that. And we'll be talking about that later. We're so pleased to be here. Holy smokes. <laughs> 
Could it feel more like <sighs> September than when those games of the round were just bang on? I was screaming in the Carlton match. I was on my feet during Brisbane Cats. I couldn't believe what my eyes were seeing. And then when Chris Fagan and Harris Andrews ran, it was like a whole Hollywood movie running down the platform They just needed on a the beach train. and a sunset. <laughs> they did. What were your highlights, Lucy? Oh, it was beautiful. Do you know, I couldn't take my eyes off that absolutely full Gabba crowd. The excitement that you could just see in the faces of all of those fans, that mark of Lincoln McCarthy's Mm -hmm. right at the end. Oh my gosh. Is there anything more joyous than a game that comes down to like the last kick for a neutral supporter? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Uh, And uh, this does make me wonder, what do you think's worse? Being flogged Mm. in the minute, right? So forget about context and the impact of the game, but being flogged or losing on the siren... By one point. Losing on the siren it for mine. Is. Thanks, Nicole yes. Hayes. I thought you were going to say, would you rather lose all day and then win at the very end or be winning all day and then lose at the very end? Is that really? <laughs> is that a hard one for you, Em? Sometimes I like the spectacle of having a whole day out where it's quite joyous and you're winning all day. But then I want to win at the end too. That's the bit. Yeah. Look, that is the important bit as we've ascertained <laughs> by the rules of the game. But that the Richmond Eagles game as well, that last quarter I was watching it knowing the result and I just kept thinking, how is this going to play out? Yeah. It was unbelievable. We haven't even mentioned the fact that Ben Brown kicked a oh, kicked bazillion. A bazillion and he's... I mean, he's now sitting pretty for the Coleman. Jeremy Cameron's out, so it's possible that he will get. He's still got some work to do. But the fact that the, when North Melbourne responds from kicking one goal the week before, mm. and then he just comes out and kicks entire teams' whole scores just himself, Ben Brown. I did want to go back. Charlie Cameron. Oh, Charlie Cameron. Such joy watching him Mm. play. It's such an extraordinary thing. And he just keeps doing those things. You go, no, bodies aren't meant to do that. Like, I love that he comes out of nowhere a lot of the time. And I guess he shouldn't be. We should be watching him all the time. But it does appear that he just comes around packs and just appears off screen and suddenly he's there. Snagging goals like nothing Mm. on this earth. There's a lot to like watching that Brisbane team. Yeah. They're really exciting. Dylan Grimes. Coming back onto the ground, taking a mark that was really, really important in the in the dying minutes of that game. How he is so important to Richmond. And mm. I was saying to my husband how much I love watching that Richmond defence work. They are so good. Can we also talk about Patrick Cripps? Do you oh. think that he's a chance for the Brownlow? This would be a game changer, uh, but I just yeah, yeah he's a Pisces. Be right. I told you this <laughs> earlier on in the year. MPC. I think there's a. Is he a front burner or a back burner? Guy? I don't know, but he's a Pisces. It's trust me. Oh my it's written goodness. in the stars. It's written in the stars. There was also some significant retirements, and I just want to say, Hayden mm. Valentine and Aaron Sanderlands. That was like a friendship moment. That was like I felt like it was Lord of the Rings. It was a moment. It was like it, it, short of putting Hayden Valentine in a baby Bjorn. <laughs> Aaron Sandlands carrying him off like that. There was nothing that Hodor. tops that. It was a Hodor moment. It was <laughs> Sam Wise. It was all of the above. But there was this beautiful video that they put out. And they are really good friends. They're really, really close. And I think for most of Hayden Ballantyne's career, we've all really hated him. <laughs> Turns out he's a really nice guy. <laughs> Here's a little grab of them chatting in the car and Aaron Sandlands' hilarious story. Parked around here somewhere. No, you're just going past it, mate. Here it is. It's got the booster seat in the front and everything. <laughs> Joshy to Luca, you know they have to get up the front and say like their jokes and that. Yeah. First game players get up, say a joke, buy a present for someone. He bought me size three kids shirts. <laughs> and gave that to me. So he goes, mate, here's a shirt for you. 
played a game against Western Bulldogs, and that was back in the day. You'd run up and down the sidelines to keep warm because you would have been lucky to play a quarter total for the game. And this bloke yells out from the crowd, Hey Sandlands, back to the Adams family. <laughs> <laughs> oh mate, and I actually started laughing. I was running up and down the boundary. <laughs> in the car together. I love Darren Sanderland saying you can actually hear what we're saying out there. I mean, clearly we know this, yeah. but there's something about that that really warms the cockles of my heart. It wasn't the only retirement, though. There was a huge moment for you, Lucy, on the weekend when Ruffy <laughs> kicked a bag and you were in floods of tears. I did shed quite a few tears and I wasn't by myself, I have no. to say. I was lucky enough to watch that with my Hawthorne loving family. That was pretty fun. But what a way to go out. It was such a fairy tale. And to see him then interviewed after the game by his mate, Geordie Lewis. Lewis has also announced that he's going to be retiring. So um, I look forward to maybe seeing Ruff out there to, you know, with a microphone to interview him at the end. <laughs> Wouldn't Ruffy, that be great? Ruffy in the commentary box is something that I would love. Yeah, yeah he's, he's a very funny guy. He's and very, very dry. dry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Snap. Snap. The other retirements that are Sydney have, I think, four players from their 2012 Premiership team who have announced their retirement. So Heath Grundy, Jared McVeigh, Nick Smith, and then Kieran Jack, who I always thought was the captain of a pirate ship with a name like mm. that. But they have all announced that they're going to be retiring and um, Buddy will also be back to play his 300th. So it's going to be a big game as well as having some other things on at that game, which we'll talk about later. That means, though, that from that 2012 team, there's just the three, Sam Reid, Luke Parker and Josh Kennedy. So that's, wow. that is quite a shifting of generations, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And we talk a lot about Sydney being this young team. Mm. It's demonstrated now with people leaving. And it's funny, though, with these epic retirements, and also I'm thinking the same, we haven't even talked about the fact that Ross Lyon is now not the coach of Fremantle. Um, strap with yourselves so, in. Strap yourselves <laughs> in. It he said it's merely, been a ride. Lucky he strapped himself in. Merely weeks ago, he said, <laughs> Good this was a quote. He said, my record speaks for itself. I'll be here till the end of 20." 21, I think he said. Mm. Little did he know they were, they were contrasting statements. Well, turns out his record did speak for itself. <laughs> um, anyway, that's a very interesting development. But I think once a few go, they all go and then it's going to be a mass clean out. There's going to be all these interesting moves. Daisy um, Thomas as well, finishing up for Carlton, but hanging out the shingle kind of saying he wouldn't mind mm. going somewhere else. And there were some rumours about Luke Hodge as well, Nicole. The talk that is he's going to retire at the end of the year. And it kind of makes sense that he's the last of his generation isn't he, of, of his re- draft year, uh, mm. still playing? I think he and Gary Ablett Jr. were drafted right. in the same okay. year. Oh, that's right, that's right. We haven't had that confirmed though yet, have we? But I have to say, do, when when you've got a second retirement, because let's not forget Luke Hodge retired from Hawthorne. Oh, we all already wrote on the enormous car, right. novelty the card. card. He got the present. We did the whip around. We got him a present. It, I think it's like a second wedding. Like, I don't <laughs> think you get to wear white again. Like, do we, we're not going to do... <laughs> The whole thing, are we? Like, we just go, yeah, yeah, well done. We love you. So no chair? No chair? No, we can just play him a reel from 2000 and what what year was it? Two years here's ago. Here's one we prepared earlier. Yeah, here's one we prepared earlier. I heard, have heard Bob Murphy talk about how Luke Hodge ruined all of his retirement photos because they retired on the same <laughs> day and same game and so they're both getting chaired off at the same time and so all of his photos have this man who's continued to play. <laughs> It's a little awkward. All right, are we ready to roll up our sleeves and melee, my ladies? <laughs> yes, sure. <laughs> I shall answer in the affirmative. Okay, I'll go first. 
amazing during the week. I went to Richmond and there was the launch of their Inclusion and Diversity Action Plan, which our dear friend of the pod, Rana, was so instrumental in not only putting together the plan, but also the actual launch was absolutely beautiful. There was a choir, there was dancing, there was amazing speeches, and there was this beautiful video. And I'd like to play the audio from it now because it is written by Rana, I believe, and voiced by our friend Peggy O'Neill. Tigers come with many stripes, many abilities, many cultures, many ways to be. Inclusion to us is about respect, about making space for those who often get left out, making sure we all own the game, moving together connected by our differences, strong and bold in the yellow and black. Inclusion to us means not having to change who you are to be accepted or understood. We believe in safe spaces and bold conversations. Inclusion to us means a better club, a better business, and a better us. It was a stunning launch. One of the things that came out of it for me that I really thought about was something that Peggy said in that video, but also Brendan Gale got up and spoke and he was saying inclusion is not just an altruistic concept or aim for the Richmond Football Club. It is actually the pillar of good business. And I was thinking about how true that is. And as I started to think about that, I started to see so many examples of it. We know that diversity and inclusion is really important for business, but it's also a really hard conversation to have if you don't have a very diverse workplace or sporting club or whatever. And so I think the business case is actually a really important one to be able to make. And to have Brendan Gale's voice in this period where Richmond's been really successful speaking about that, it um, speaks volumes to where people have realised there's a whole lot of people who have been marginalised for so long, especially in football, we talk about that so much, Mm -hmm. but that there is actually significant benefits across the community. And I think bottom line is one thing that can speak to people who are in power to be able to make those changes. And once I started thinking about it like that, I actually saw examples of it everywhere. And I was listening to Pod Save America, which is one of my favourite pods. And they were speaking to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who I have just adored. Basically, her background was she was working in a bar, but she became a community organiser. And she's now a really powerful voice in Washington. And she had this to say. My primary election, I won because I expanded the electorate 68 percent over the last off-year midterm primary. I talk to people who don't vote. Mm. That's my jam. One of the biggest misconceptions that we have in politics is that people who don't vote are apathetic. And if anything, sometimes I find them to be the most passionate about politics and they're just very heartbroken and dejected. In listening to her, I could see how it is that we've been able to create this community that we weren't trying to diversify an audience that necessarily already existed. It was in finding an audience that hadn't been catered for. And, you know, that's what good business is, is I suppose, is finding something that hasn't been done before and then seeing a need for it and creating something to work with those Mm. people. Mm. And I thought that, wow, there's a really perfect example of that. And that is, if you look at AFLX and AFLW, because AFLX was speaking to an audience that already existed. It wasn't trying, I don't think in this country, to try and get more people in on the game. I know that that was the hope globally, but it didn't really work. But you look at AFLW, all of a sudden you're offering something that's so different to what your core business has been and it brings in other people. And now we see people in the outer that have never been there before and who are engaging Mm -hmm. with the games in the way that they have never 
engaged before. before. And I just thought it's a really important message and and I love that Richmond are taking the lead on this. You do get a feeling at that club that it is incredibly diverse and that people are being welcomed in. And there was a beautiful moment. There was a panel conversation. There was a woman who is the CEO of Midsummer Festival, which is an incredibly inclusive festival, which is great for access and um, championed by Richmond as well. They're, They're in a partnership together. And she was talking about how she recently read an article, a review on a dance performance by a vision impaired person. Oh, wow. And I thought that is true inclusion, that what had happened with this dance performance is they'd actually had a whole lot of supporting material that they had sent out to people who had bought tickets who were vision impaired that talked to them about what the experience would look like, feel like when they came, when they walked through the door, what the arrangement of the seating was, how many people would be in the room, what the setup of the stage would be and gave them a visual guide. And I thought, we're great for audio, but I know for a lot of um, vision impaired people. I don't know how we communicate via our social media, which is such an important place for us. We're often putting photos of each other and photos of things that we're doing, which is the reason why we got Kelly Underwood in today to describe what it's like um, when we all get together on a Wednesday morning, because I feel like we can do better. Everyone can do better. You see where organisations have, a, I guess, a default of who they picture as their audience it locks you in to a certain way of thinking. And when you question that, it actually gives you the ability to reach further afield and bring other people in. And and that's what we're talking about when we're talking about increasing diversity and inclusion. We see it that in clubs and in organisations that do a good job of it, you can see that they're actually expanding not only the numbers of the supporters, but also the different ways that people engage. One of the things that's been really important for that, I think, has been the Pride Games Mm -hmm. in the AFL. And so this Saturday afternoon, we're going to see Sydney and St Kilda take part in the fourth official Pride Game between these two clubs. And this year, they will specifically be celebrating rainbow families, which I think is lovely because Mm. it's bringing in, you know, children as well. Friends of the pod, the Newtown Breakaways, are going to be outside that game in Driver Avenue if you are going to the game and they are looking to expand their club. They're actually launching a men's team. So if you want to be part of that, if you're somebody who identifies as male and wants to get involved in a community club, we recommend the Newtown Breakaways very highly. One of the other things I'd just like to say is that the Swans and the Saints are amazing in terms of their support of the LGBTIQ community and the fans, and so are their pride groups. And these pride groups are usually run by volunteers. They do an enormous amount of work in terms of advocacy, education, and ensuring that people have a welcoming face. So I just want to say thank you. I don't Mm. know if people realise how much work Work they do. So much work. That's so true. I heard a beautiful podcast with Corbin Middlemess, who is one of the commentators here at ABC Grandstand and we we had Corby on the show recently. He recently wrote an article coming out and saying, you know, I'm I'm a gay man working in sports broadcasting. It's rare. It's rare Mm. to be an out gay man working in sports broadcasting in this country. And he sat down and had a conversation with Damien Barrett this week. And one of the things that he was talking about is that he knew that the Pride game was coming up and he has put his hand up to 
commentate that game because the last time he commentated that game, he wasn't open oh, about wow. his sexuality at that point. And so this time he's going to go in, he's going to do it, and he knows that he brings a different lens to it. One of the other things that he talked about on that podcast was um, when Damien asked him about calling the Pride game, he explained how he's you know honoured to do it, but also that there's something that raises, I guess, a bit of a problem for him. The one thing that does make me uncomfortable going to the game is it, it did when I was there in in 2017 is that you've got this pride game taking place and there's sort of rainbow flags around the place and the players are wearing rainbow numbers and yet on the advertising hoardings all around the ground is is Qatar Airways just being splashed everywhere and for a lot of people you think oh well what does that have to do with anything Qatar's a state owned airline the Swans regularly send players over to Qatar on their beautiful airlines to to sort of take photos and and publicity and all the rest of it and they're obviously a huge financial backer of the club it is illegal to be gay in Qatar right and the results of of being gay as a man in Qatar uh, and someone as I would be it would be imprisonment for somewhere between one to three years really uh, I, I find it hard to get past the hypocrisy of that it's interesting the issues that can come up and and it's one of those things that often happens with sponsors and you know we see it in the gambling space Corbin is full of praise for Sydney and for everything that they do but he's also keen to raise that question with them if he has the opportunity to do it I think I think it's the role of sponsors and the role of corporations here is is really enormous in many ways. So it can be in terms of creating ethical problems, but it can also be in terms of holding people to account. So for example, in the Ellen Jones situation, oh, yeah. with the language he used insulting the Prime Minister of New Zealand, Jacinda Ardern, talking about Scott Morrison needing to give her a few backhanders or to shove a sock down her throat. If you think about um, right now, there's kind of a, a, a run of sponsors withdrawing their sponsorship to put pressure on um, his employer, basically, to make sure either that he's held to account or even that he loses his job. It's a really interesting space to watch corporations, the way that they respond to these things. So they can either be the problem or they can be part of the solution. Mm. On that, it's interesting you should raise Alan Jones because it's been amazing to see the way that people are responding now because there was obviously comments that he made previously about our former Prime Minister, Julia Gillard, that were gendered and less so. You know, things are changing, I think, and I think that we really saw that over the weekend when The Age published a match report and the final one of the final paragraphs talked about the value of the retiring Frio players and how they, they had not really input into the future of the club because they'd all gone and ruined everything by having doors. We were given the heads up of that by one of our listeners who was really upset about it and I was quite upset when I first read it. I just thought that we'd come so much further. But what was really interesting is we did tweet about it. And I just want to say, when we do that, it is such a vulnerable feeling. Mm. We hate calling people out. Calling people out is an uncomfortable thing to do. You're living on the absolute precipice of vulnerability because, man, you better be, you better have a really spot on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so we didn't tag in the author of that because I actually felt that it was the editor's job to read that and see if that's something that the age really wanted to put out there into the ether. And of course, The Age did remove it after a couple of tweets. It was maybe 45 minutes after we tweeted it. You guys all got on board and I know that it raised a lot of issues for you. There were so many conversations about people saying how they've been told in the street, people saying, you know, you must be so disappointed because you had 
daughters mm. to football loving folk and obviously that happens to my family all the time and it was less about whether you're a parent mm. <laughs> I think that a lot of the time people only get skin in the game because I say as a mother or as a father of or whatever and I think that's incredibly frustrating especially for people who don't have children you can still exercise good humanity and good judgment and um, doesn't need to be kind of measured by that mm. but I was impressed the age actually issued an apology they did remove that paragraph from the online match report. It was still in the printed paper. Obviously, they can't, can't really they undo, can't. That. And they, look, undo they, that. They tweeted an apology. They also published an apology. To mine, it was a good apology. They said, we apologise for a line in our Frio Essendon match report about three dockers who ran through the banner with their daughters. It suggested that because of their gender, the daughters couldn't contribute to the club's future. This is inherently wrong and shouldn't have been published. Maybe we could change the word club to, you know, football future or the AFL because I think, you know, what a lot of people were saying is, you know, there are so many ways that people can contribute to football clubs and to the football industry and it's got nothing to do with with your gender. Yeah, we need to redefine what club looks like. Definitely. The thing that I took away from it is that the journalist who wrote it was writing on a deadline and in his own words, and I quote him here, he said he was in an AFL headspace and what I want to draw attention to is a few weeks ago in our episode called Passing the Impasse, I talked about unconscious bias and mentioned the work of Professor Jennifer Eberhardt. So she works very hard with people to help identify what their implicit or unconscious biases are and ways to address it and to change going forward. And she says that, and I'm quoting her here, that there are certain conditions under which we become more vulnerable to it when we're thinking fast and moving fast. And what I think that indicates is that there's a challenge for organisations like newspapers to acknowledge that this vulnerability exists under deadlines, then put systems in place so that it doesn't happen. So have diverse editors, have um, sub-editors and people with different life experiences to read over the work. It's a simple... Totally. It's so funny thinking that the author said that he was in an AFL headspace. Yes. If I'm in an AFL headspace, AFLW is as equally represented exactly. as AFLM, maybe even more. My bias is probably throws yep. to the women's game. Mm. So you think about if I'd been the editor of that paper at that time, mm. that wouldn't have happened. But I also think too, it's, it comes back to that notion, you know, you talk about the default, is this idea that it is, the AFL headspace is a, is a blokey world. It's hard not to, to agree with that when you look at the media landscape for the most part in that commercial space. And so again, coming back to that inclusion and diversity thing, the more actively we see media organisations embracing and changing the face of the media landscape. I was listening to, I listened to Daisy in the morning when she, when she goes on SEN talking to Gary Lyon and Tim Watson and they're two very established, well, one serious football cred, two also having quite a lot of media experience. And Daisy's quite new at the elite level on both those fronts and yet she walks in there and she owns that space. I'm consistently impressed with one, her incredible football genius, but also just her confidence in demanding her time and how I'm listening to them start to concede it more. And and the reason it stands out is because we don't hear it enough. We don't see it enough. She is still a lone voice in many ways in commercial mm-hmm. media. And I'm looking forward to seeing, look how effective it can be. Look, yeah. We're seeing it happen. So if more organisations could get on board with that, I think that these issues will stop being issues. One other thing I just want to add to the Pride game, which is coming up, it's just the Pride game, which is um, Sydney v Saints, and it's on Saturday at the SCG. That's a lot of S's. That was like a Dr. Seuss um, fixturing <laughs> <laughs> challenge for me, um, is that I got together with Darcy Vessio, Julia Kiera, friend of the pod, and Patty Kinnersley, who's the CEO of Our Watch, at a Pride event um, hosted by 
the Darabin Falcons and it was about kind of unpacking and talking about the impact of queer women on football and specifically to celebrate the impact that they've made on AFLW. And I think the thing that came back to me throughout this conversation was a really great conversation and uh, Julia and I have edited an article which will hopefully be published in the age in the lead up to the Pride game is that two things Julia said, she's so wise and she's amazing, they're all amazing, but Julia said, you know, we talk about you can't be what you can't see, but that's not just on the football field or on the TV. It can be in seeing women editing newspapers Mm. or being in administration at radio stations or across from you at work if they're the fire Mm. warden or, you know, whatever it is. So there's things that you can do to promote um, inclusivity, diversity, include people who haven't had that moment before. And the other thing she said that I thought was amazing is that the impact of the Pride game may not be visible to all, but it will be visible and powerful to the people who need it the most. And in the article, she talks about how much healing her 14-year-old self got during the first season of AFLW, seeing so many women as a 14-year-old, she would have completely respected and admired it could have changed the course of her life or the way she felt about herself at that time. I just thought that was incredibly powerful. So I'm looking forward to that article coming out. Some other news this week, Nicole, is that Steve Smith is not going to be playing in the third test and it's because he copped a ball in a really dangerous place. Actually, that helmet didn't yeah. didn't really protect him there. No, did no he wasn't wearing the, the guard that he's supposed to as well. Mm. Um, yeah, and it does bring up a, a recent interview with Dr. Bennett Omalu. Have you? I don't know how yes. many of you saw yes. the concussion movie, movie, the concussion. Will Smith, yep. that basically highlighted his involvement or his driving the discovery of CTE. It was in 2002 where he identified chronic traumatic encephalopathy as a condition that affects NFL players. Traditionally, it had been something that might have been identified. They didn't have a name for it, but it was the old punch drunk for boxers. It's it's a great movie and I recommend it. But he is obviously at the forefront of concussion and CTE research. He came out in a recent interview and really put it out there and said that he expects that um, within a generation that contact sport won't exist, particularly NFL, but there's NHL as well. And he also, when drawn on it, made comparisons with NRL and AFL. He also said that children under 18 should be banned from playing contact sport, which is a pretty big statement. Mm -hmm. The reality is, is every impact to their head could affect the player's brain. And what he said was every sudden change in motion, the brain jolts around in your skull. And so whether players are concussed or not, that has the potential to permanently damage the brain. In a typical NFL game, a child receives approximately 50 blows according to research. So it's the repeated impact that has a direct correlation between head trauma and the development of CTE. We, we know the NFL's already shelled out $500 million. There's talk of it getting up as high as $1 billion. It's a story that won't go away. And, you know, even though cricket, it's not an ongoing problem, we, we've had some serious mm. trauma um, and even some deaths as a consequence of head injury. I know that you followed the Steve Smith story, Lucy. Yeah. What I think is really interesting is that when we talk about concussion, we kind of need to separate it out that there is CTE. And so that is the repetitive subconcussive effects on the brain. So you might not necessarily think you have been injured, Mm. but it's that accumulative effect as opposed to traumatic brain injuries or head injuries, which do present as a major concussion. You've got all these different types of injury and it all kind of comes under the umbrella of concussion. But the hit to the head of Steve Smith was shocking to watch and, of course, brought up memories of 
watching Phil Hughes, yeah. which I think was, is something that is very difficult for a lot of people. I must say that I was beyond shocked to see Steve Smith go back out and resume batting. He clearly did not look okay. Mm. Um, we've come to expect because we you know, live in this <laughs> AFL world and we watch what happens and we know how strict the guidelines are for players to return to the field of play that, and you know, look, I'm not questioning, you know, what the doctors were doing, but it just seemed so bizarre that he would come back yeah. out. And I'm really pleased that they are not putting him back out there. I think we're going to see things change really drastically in the terms of how it's managed medically on the ground and, and in the follow-up. Okay, from hardcore chats about concussion, we are going to have a conversation about <laughs> pop culture. I have been loving Survivor. Mm-hmm. Oh, same. My God, me too. And actually it reminds me that I've had an omen watch that I've been sitting on for Ooh. a while where I am wondering whether watching Simon Black, who used to play for Brisbane, and Sean Hampson, who used to play for <gasps> Richmond, oh, I'm wondering God. whether there is this massive Survivor omen watch. I think you've nailed it. They're both still in it and they are both contenders. Like, and to who take would it have predicted out? it when they cast those two? We're this, done. This is actually we're a done. thing. We're done here. We just Science. have to watch Survivor and we're done. We can call off the mm. grand final. Yeah. Um, it's amazing to have so many people represented from our code that we love on this show. <laughs> but for me, I've just been completely addicted to watching Abby Holmes. She's been, I mean, I love seeing Nova as well. I'm not saying that I, <laughs> I haven't loved everyone. And all of the women are really holding up some amazing gameplay and they're yep. so strong and powerful. But of course, my AFLW heart is watching Abby Holmes and I have loved how strong she's been and how she's represented and it gave me such joy to be able to speak to her and ask her all the questions I've always wanted to know about Survivor. (laughs) So here is a beautiful chat with Abby Holmes. Abby Holmes, we have seen you on the sidelines. We have seen you winning premierships for the Adelaide Crows. But I am currently spending so much time with you, completely obsessed watching you in Survivor. How are you and have you had a decent meal? Oh, yes. I am great, thank you. Thanks for having me. And all of the contestants that went on Survivor, we just can't stop eating now and and we still talk about food even though we're on the other side. (laughs) Okay, it looks like you have created a major girl alliance and a power trio of friendship. I don't want you to give us any spoilers because I know that you can't, but I do have to deep dive on some Survivor questions I've always wanted to know. How many articles of clothing are you allowed to take? (laughs) Basically, you rock up in your outfit on day one. You're allowed an additional five items to that. But bathers, top and bottoms is one item. Undies is one item. Socks is one item. So you have to be really strategic about the items that you take on there because it's cold, it's wet, it's miserable on occasion, and you have to make sure that you're prepared for all of the elements. And are you allowed to take medication with you? You are. We're very well looked after. So for people who do take medication, of course. So when they came knocking for you, had you thought about doing something like this before? Well, look, I'm the kind of person that I'm always looking for my next challenge. So I hate the feeling of being comfortable and content. So, you know, when Survivor was kind of floated with me, I just kind of said, oh, yeah, 
that would be great. Put my name out there to my managers and, and then bang, it all happened really quickly. Yeah, I don't think I was fully prepared for it, to be honest, in terms of how hard it actually was. But, you know, hands down, the hardest thing I've ever done in my life, but the best thing. The ways in which you are promoting the women's game and women's footballing strength and amazing skills is next level. This is a huge moment for AFLW and there was no bigger moment in the game than, and this is a slight spoiler alert if you haven't caught up, but there was um, a challenge that you did where you had to kick what was effectively kicking a goal off a wet platform. You notoriously, people were talking up the fact that you had, were the first woman to ever kick 100 goals in a season. <laughs> I imagine some of those games were pretty wet. might have been during the rainy season up north. That was a big pressure moment. I've got to say, I have never been more like on the edge of my seat with clutch goals. I was like, you are doing this for the whole of the AFLW. How was the pressure in that moment? Oh, nothing like a little bit of pressure on your shoulders, is there? But, (laughs) you know, at that point in time, we had myself, Simon and ET. So we were like, there is no way that we are going to let ourselves lose this one. So obviously the boys had a kick and then I kicked three, taking us to five. Yeah, it was tricky because for me personally, I'd been rehabbing my knee since my surgery in December and I hadn't actually been kicking. So I went into that challenge a little bit anxious myself going, oh no, like, you know, I haven't, you know, kicked the footy since my op and how's it going to go? It was one of those moments where you just look back on now and you're just like, oh, one of the best moments ever. And to be able to share that with that group of people was incredible. So you just mentioned that you were just rehabbing. You've been delisted from the Adelaide Crows, but we know that there's more teams coming in next season. What's the status quo with your footy at the moment, Abby? Yeah, I've been rehabbing my knee since December with Richmond. They've been incredible. Tommy Hunter, Katie, and and then the medical staff there have just been insanely good, you know, in getting me back to full strength with my knee. Unfortunately, I didn't quite get back for any VFLW games this year, which was the goal. So, yeah, now my knee has just started to feel really good. But unfortunately, with the season, you know, about two more games until finals, I won't get back to that. Um, I'm just still rehabbing my knee, really hoping to get back and playing AFLW. So all things going to plan. Uh, Yeah, hopefully I will be back out there playing AFLW very soon. Well, we can't wait to see that. What's interesting with your career is that you were on the sidelines and doing football media before you became an AFLW-listed player. This survivor moment, I think, is going to step your media profile up we don't even know what the next thing's going to be for you. It was amazing to see how many AFL or Australian Rules football people there were on the show because, of course, Simon Black was also uh, or is also a champion. But on the contenders, it was so weird to see Sean Hampson there, also a Tiger. (laughs) To think that he wasn't on the champions team, did that kind of shock you when you just rocked up and all of a sudden there he is in the lineup? Yeah, nobody was more surprised than me. You know, rocking up and, and seeing Sean Hampson there, it was weird. But, you know, I understand him not wanting to be on the Champions Drive and him kind of wanting to be a contender as well because the way that they kind of pitched Sean was that he was so close to being a champion. Like, he played 98 AFL games, didn't quite get the 100. He missed out on the 2017 Grand Final. But he's a, he's always going to be a champion in my eyes anyway. But it was so funny to see, you know, everybody blowing up on... Instagram and Twitter when the cast is released and people are just saying, he's engaged to Megan Gale. How does that not make him a champion? So, no, he's an absolute legend, Hammer. There's some amazingly strong women represented in this show. Nova Paris was, of course, in, in your t- your tribe originally as well. It's amazing to look at how tight you all become, how hard it is. Obviously, you and Nova had some moments and how emotional it gets. What's the bubble like that you're living in? 
obviously you are living with people 24-7. You know, they are the only people you speak to for your entire time in the game. They very quickly become like your family. It is very structured in terms of waking up, eating breakfast, going to a challenge, coming back and either going to tribal or enjoying a, a reward. But obviously they don't cast 24 people who all get along, do they? So. <laughs> So you just have to obviously stick tight with those that you you love and, and you want to align yourself with. And then unfortunately, there are going to be some people that don't quite get along. Yeah, it is an interesting space, though. It's something that I'd I've certainly never experienced anything like that before. So it's not like a footy club? Uh, kind of. Yeah, you know, in a way. I mean, I, I've never experienced you know, not liking teammates or anything like that. But I can I can look at it from that team perspective that there, there are people that somewhat don't agree with what others are saying or doing and that, and that kind of thing. Coming from a team environment, that was definitely an advantage for me early. It was more when it, I don't know, when, when there's people there that you don't necessarily want to spend too much time with, that it's very evident because <laughs> you don't have anywhere to escape to. But it's the game. <laughs> so I've had a long-held belief that Chelsea Randall would be extraordinary on Survivor. I feel like she can probably make fire. She was a teammate of yours. If you had to pick one other teammate who would do well on Survivor, who would it be? I'm going to do my girl MJ a massive favour here, Mariana <laughs> Rajic. So she um, is a diehard super fan of Survivor. She applies every year. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, when she actually found out I was going on, she was like, oh, my God. Like, that is like a lifelong dream. Broke my heart as well, knowing how much it meant to her to one day get the opportunity. But the girls have been so supportive. And as you said, imagine Chelsea Randall out there. She would just thrive in those conditions, I reckon. Yeah, she would. So I've got a footy question. We've yeah. just read that it's been released that the Adelaide Crows and the Northern Territory um, are no longer going to have this relationship that they've had for the women's team. You are from the Northern Territory. You played for the Adelaide Crows. Do you know what the story is with that and where Northern Territory might be aligned with coming into the Season 4 of AFLW? No, um, I haven't really been filled in on, on much information. You know, I, I look at the opportunities that having that relationship in place has allowed some of the, the Territorian girls to, you know, be seen on a national scale of AFLW. Um, you know, you look now, Sally Riley, Taylor Thorne, all of these girls that are, you know, from the NT are now going to Gold Coast and, and things like that. So it certainly has opened up opportunities for Territorian girls around the country, not just with Adelaide. One day the goal would always be, I know that obviously resources and whatnot need to be in place, but have your own AFLW team. Yeah, you just never know what's around the corner, but I have no doubt that there's going to be a huge representation of Northern Territory talent in the AFLW next year because there's some phenomenal athletes running around up there. So Abby doesn't know what's going to happen with the Northern Territory Alliance mm. and we're still digging around to see. Uh, to, to be honest, we could be looking for the kind of hidden immunity idol that hasn't yet been mm-hmm. hidden. I don't know if the <laughs> if the relationship's been set up yet. But the other really interesting thing that came out of Survivor, sorry if that was too survivory for people who don't watch the show, but Jonathan LaPaglia, who is the host of the show, who's been signed on for four years, we very rarely see this, but he came out this week and he spoke out and he said, the thing that has disappointed me so much about Survivor casting is how whitewashed it's been. There has been very little diversity in the casting of these people. And I thought about it because he's right, he's absolutely Mm. 100% correct, but also casting is a huge 
issue, especially on commercial TV, one place where I see casting and guest spots being so diverse and beautiful is the drum on the ABC. They are nailing it. They are best practice. They are absolutely leading the way on this. And the diversity of voices that they have on that show is extraordinary. So Jonathan has spoken out. I think that that's a really powerful, Mm. it's dangerous for him to do it because he's the host, but there's no Mm. one who looks more like that host from America than him. So he's not going to lose his job, but I love that he's given his voice to this because that is one way that you lead and you make a change. One thing was missing from the show last week, Mm. ladies. Any guesses on what it was? Stats. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, reliable information. And also Googling with Felicity. Here it is. Finals are almost upon us, meaning that the creatives all over the country must now be working on plans to capitalise on the most holy of all days, the grand final. It's well known that in the USA, advertising during the Super Bowl is both highly creative in terms of concept and delivery, as well as astronomically expensive. At the last Super Bowl, commercials cost over $7 million Aussie dollars for a 30-second ad, compared with a bargain priced $175,000 here for a 30-second slot during our grand final. But other than advertising, how does the AFL grand final stack up against the Super Bowl? We generally win on crowd numbers, but they drink more beer and they order more hot dogs. Proudly, we completely out-coffee them, with an estimated 10,000 coffees being served on the day here. And needless to say, we win on meat pie consumption as well. But where they resoundingly and always win is on the entertainment. If you're like me, now's that time of the year you start getting really nervous about which old banger Gil's singing along to in the car, and then has that light bulb moment of, let's get them here for the halftime entertainment, hang the expense. And whilst the NFL consistently presents a super-produced, star-studded, highly entertaining event, in recent years, we've ended up in Gil's back catalogue of Sting, Tom Jones, Lionel Richie, and of course, who can ever forget Meatloaf? His set cost the league $500,000, which even Gil famously declared afterwards was probably $499,000 too much. The best years, in my opinion, have been where we've allowed Australian entertainers to shine. Powderfinger, Vance Joy, The Living End, just to name a few. I want to suggest a campaign, maybe even just at least a playlist, because people, we either need to up Gil's music credibility by planting some new earworms, or we need to have someone take his Sony Walkman off him. Thanks to Felicity for bringing that back onto the agenda. It's actually probably my favourite footy chat. <laughs> you know, I'm such an enthusiast for the games, but I really love the entertainment as well. We've been going around the grounds this year for anyone who has just tuned in at round 22 of the, of the season. And I love going around the grounds because we're getting these interesting stories that are sometimes about football clubs, sometimes about the way football has influenced culture and life in all the different corners of the world, not just Australia. And so a lot of those stories come to us from listeners. We've really loved that. I've I feel like that's been a a really nice part of the tapestry of the pod this year. And um, we've got a very special one for you today. It's time to go around the grounds. Hello, my name is Scott Pearce and I'm the author of the book Faded Yellow by the Winter, uh, released through Reading Sideways Press. It's so great to have you here, Scott. Thanks Thank, for coming in. Thank you for having me. It's a great story and congratulations on your debut. Thank you. I'm really interested in why footy was the chosen sort of metaphor and the chosen sort of setting sure. for this story. I've always been a massive football fan, but there's always been parts of football that have troubled me. And a lot of it is 
the types of things that are coming out now about the exclusion, the bigotry, the homophobia, they've been really ugly for football and they don't, they don't allow it to be what it could be, to be a really powerful force in, in bringing forward not only the game but and, and, and allowing space for others. I wanted to look at what happens to those people that, you know, that try to be the old guard and try to say this is our space and no one else is allowed in? Because there's a lot of those people around still mm. who are saying, no, football's about white men. That's it. That's the totality. Everybody else just stay in your corner. That's really awful. It doesn't give a diversity of voices, which actually improves coaching. It improves playing. It improves commentary. And so I wanted to explore rural football teams in particular. There's a lot of them in decline. What happens when they fall apart? Some parts of football, you know, all those old traditions, they should die. And that's okay. So when you're writing a story like that and you're writing characters who might be unlikable or who use language that you wouldn't use yourself or that people might find racist or homophobic, how do you balance that tension as a writer? I think that you've got to love your characters. You've got to love all of them, even those people that are objectionable and that you probably wouldn't want to associate with. You've got to say, okay, I still love you and I'm going to give you your space to say what's true for you and who you really are. And then whatever the consequences are of that, well, that's what you've earned. And so I just wanted to sort of explore that and say that some of these characters are a bit awful, but maybe they've done some good things. And then how do we reconcile that? I think that comes up a lot in football when when someone who might be a terrific player and have and people who might have cheered from for many years does something, maybe off the field and And we're not really sure how to process that. I wanted to look at not how that works so much at a national level, but how does that work at a local level? Local football has its its mythology and it has its stars and it has its legends and they're just as important as are those people playing at at the game at a national level. Some of the themes that you explore in the book are, I guess, the broad themes of masculinity and what it is to be a man. While that is kind of going on, it's also looking at the decline of the country town and the impact on the environment and those sorts of issues. What did you want the book to say about those things? I think I wanted the book to say that these are interconnected. It's intergenerational. The violence that took place during colonisation, it resonates. And I take that quote from Faulkner that history isn't a was, it's an is. It's always present and it always impacts the present. And that sometimes people are very resistant to that and they don't like to hear that what they thought was true is not true. I mean, those two Adam Goods documentaries just demonstrated that. And it was one of those things that at the time, it was really clear that there was, you know, that sort of initial booing. It was like, okay, And then it continued on and it lingered. And it was clearly not about Adam Goods necessarily the football player anymore. It was about Adam Goods the person. It was so awful to watch. And every week I think there was a tension, you know, watching a game you were just thinking, please don't let this happen again. Please don't be that person. And then it would happen. You'd be like, good grief, Mm -hmm. is this who we are? And so even now when some people are saying, I I didn't realise, I I don't know, I just feel like, didn't you? Really? So I look in exploring those issues and the way in which violence has always been part of colonisation and continues maybe in different forms, but it's there, 
the absence of a treaty, the absence of appropriate recognition in the constitution, they're also forms of violence and exclusion. And these resonate for people and, and they are a consequence of past violencism and past events. In the town that you, is it a fictional town? It is a fictional town, yeah. yes. And it was, it did strike me as being decidedly sort of Anglo-centric. Was yes, it is. It? Yeah. Yes. Is that based on somewhere you knew or that you're familiar with? Because race doesn't come up as a question really at all, does it? That was a really big struggle when I was writing it, how to address race. And so, and even asking myself, well, does anyone want to hear from middle-aged white male on race? Probably not. I think there's, you know, there's a lot of other people who probably have a, a better experience and can speak with more authority on that topic. But also, how can I address it? Looking at a range of different towns across Australia, they're all often Anglo-centric. The names of rivers, the names of streets, the names of buildings the names of the towns themselves. And so I sort of wanted to address it indirectly. That was my way of speaking to that and saying that, yes, clearly there were people here before those settlers turned up and there's remnants of them still in the town. Mm -hmm. There's remnants of their culture still in the town. No one seems to acknowledge that Mm. or really speak to it. Do you think that art and specifically books have a big role to play in bringing about social change? Yes, I think sometimes people get caught up in truth. It's like there's an objective truth to something. So even looking at the origins of AFL and, and the idea that was it derived from a First Nations game and this sort of argument, yes, it was, no, it wasn't. Um, where's the empirical evidence? I think these are poor questions. People are telling you a story. They're not maybe not writing that story down, but they're telling you their story. And that's an important... You've got to listen to other people's feelings and pay attention to other people's feelings. When you do that you understand that sometimes what is more important is the story that people are telling you and the feelings behind it more so than some definitive truth. Thank you so much, Scott. We really enjoyed reading your book and note that Martin Flanagan had written an endorsement on the back cover, which must have been quite something. That was excellent, yes. (laughs) So thank you so much for coming in and speaking to us about it today. Thank you for having me. You know what there's not enough of? This is final business, by the way. There's not enough football podcasts. <laughs> they laugh heartily. But with support for our dear friend Libby Gore, who's started her own podcast, Footy Podcast, it's called McFeast and Malthouse. I love that she's brought back Elle McFeast. How much did you love? Do you remember Friday nights watching? I'm pretty sure it was Friday nights. Don't at me. <laughs> if you know that it wasn't. I used to love seeing Elle McFeast. It was the first time I really saw a female character Mm. as she was playing with football. You know, I feel feel like it was the first time we really saw that. There's something kind of powerful about being able to play, as you say, to kind of mock and be part of it, but still come from a place of genuine affection for the game. And, yeah, women weren't doing that. Yeah. I would actually like, I mean, I I might have said this to Libby, but she's brought back the podcast. I'm like, bring her back in all her glory. Elle McFeast would love the VFLW competition, wouldn't she? And I can see it like a Titus O'Reilly type, Mm. you know. I laid out a whole social media plan for her. She just sounded exhausted <laughs> at the very concept. But you can listen to McFeast and Malthouse, which is a podcast that she has started with a man called Mick Malthouse. I don't know if you've heard oh, of him. He's sure big in him. footy. He's big um, in footy. Yeah. While we're on podcasts, could we do a shout out to our dear friend and producer, Tess Armstrong? Yes. And they came to play oh, with Danny oh. McGinley and a guy named name? Anthony Lehman. Oh. I think that's his name. Lemo is just a joy to listen it to. Really so is. thank you for that. It's um, something that you should be listening to every week. They also have stats. Yeah, they they have actual stats. Tess knows things. 
Tess you should listen to her. Tess knows a lot of she stats. She knows a lot of things. <laughs> and the other thing that you could do then, if you really love Tess on that podcast, is you could nominate her for an award. I'm going to keep banging on about awards, but the Essendon Women's Network has got their grand final lunch coming up. They are wanting people to nominate for Football Woman of the Year. There's the Community Award and Emerging Leader. I posted on this week a picture of Brienne of Tarth, who is Gwendolyn Christie, is the name of the actress. She nominated herself for an Emmy because she knew that the producers would completely bypass her and wouldn't nominate her. We'll talk about that in this another episode. And she got nominated for it as And she result. got nominated. And I'm like, you know what? If you think that you're Football Woman of the Year, nominate yourself. There is mm. no shame in it. We no. need you to do it. We need you to be recognised because as soon as you forge that path, you will forge a path for somebody else. So please go to the Essendon Women's Network Facebook page, their Instagram. You can find it through all of our links and nominate someone today. I saw a fabulous music video by the gorgeous Dyson Stringer Cloa and it's called Believer and it features women's footy. And I can't tell you how fabulous it is to see this gorgeous young woman, Lulu Beatty's the star of this video, training, she's running, she's doing all the footy stuff and just with a great song to go along, a real banger as Tess would say. <laughs> And the director of the of the video, Annalise Hickey, said about meeting Lulu, I was so taken with the 16-year-old's confidence and self-assurance. She told me of her plan to work really hard to become an AFLW player. And after her football playing career was done, she'd go on to commentate AFL, AFLW games. Being a female wasn't even a factor for her. She was going to be the best footy player she could be, despite footy traditionally being a man's game. And I just love hearing about a 16-year-old owning it. And the video is to die for. So get out there and have a look. We'll have it on our socials. Oh, how beautiful. We should go out with it today. But before we do, let's get out the magic mirror and look through it and I can see a little girl called Brando. Brando, we see you, we hear you, we love you. She is such a gorgeous part of our pod community. She's always tweeting us, asking us to adopt her (laughs) and this week she went back to play footy and in the first two minutes broke her wrist and she'll be missing the finals and Brando, we just feel for you, Lady Bird, and we love you so much. So that's who we see this week. It is time for us to get out of here. There's only one thing left to do, my ladies. Say, <laughs> ready, go, go free. <laughs> Here's the song. We'll see you next week. I'm trying to see that it's so hard to be a believer. And if you wait, it's going to get you anyway. A believer, a believer, a believer, a believer. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.